Good morning, everyone. Sorry to breathe on you like that. It's good to see all of you this morning. My name's Eric, and I'm the pastor here of, uh, of Trinity. And it's good to see some friends in town. Like Katie mentioned, we are going to have another service. So it's a two-for-one special today. You get to come back for another service where a number of my friends and other pastors in the presbytery are going to participate in a service to officially in, install me as the pastor of this church. So please come back. We're going to have really good snacks afterward. So maybe that will draw you. Cream pan? Cream pan? I don't know how to say that right, but if you know that place, we'll be serving that <laughs> this afternoon. So this morning we are continuing on in our series, and it's called Not Like Us. We're looking at some important ways that God is not like us and that we are not like God. It's been said, and I mentioned this in one of the earlier messages, that God created man in his image, and ever since, man has been returning the favor. And that, that quote, it kind of helps us see this tendency that we have, this tendency that we have to develop an idea of God that fits our own personal comfort zone, that fits into the categories that we're comfortable with, and we tend to, when we do that, create a very human-like God, and we tend to create a very godlike view of ourselves. Nowadays, we can zoom in really easily on our smartphones or on our tablets or on our computers. We can zoom in and supersize whatever image we want to look at. And on my computer, when I accidentally do that, there's this little button up at the top right-hand corner of my browser that says Reset to Default. When things get really big or things get really small, I can just go back and reset everything back to their proper size. According to the Bible, unless we see the ways that God is not like us, we tend to zoom in on ourselves. We make ourselves really big and we tend to zoom out on God. So we tend to inflate ourselves, make ourselves really big. We resist the, the boundaries of our humanity when we think we can know everything. We can do it all. We can be present everywhere. We can control our lives. We can act like we're going to live forever. And when we do that, we're zooming out on God and we're zooming in on ourselves. And this series then is about hitting the reset button in our lives. That we would have a greater, more glorious, more accurate view of God as he is described in the Bible. And a more accurate view of our humanity that actually sets us free from not having to be the God of our lives or the God of anybody else's lives. So this morning, we've, we're looking at Psalm 90. We're looking at how God is the eternal God. We've talked about how God is the transcendent God. We've talked about how God is unchanging. We've talked about how God is everywhere present and knows everything. This morning, we're going to walk through this psalm, which was written by Moses. The only psalm that we know of that was written by Moses. So maybe this is one of the oldest psalms that was ever written. So we're going to look at these three points. They're in your bulletin, and we're also going to display these points for us on the PowerPoint behind me. We're going to look at how God is eternal. We're going to look at how our lives are brief and broken. But thirdly, how our lives can still become beautiful. So first, let's talk about how God is eternal. He is not bound. He is not limited by time like we are. Now, maybe... More than ever, time in our culture is 
the most valuable commodity. It's been said before that time is money. And you could argue nowadays when our lives are so busy, when there's so much going on where a lot of us are living at such a frenzied pace in our lives that time is more valuable than money. So we'll do a quick experiment here, a quick pop quiz. Now if, if I could let you choose between having one extra day. You could have one extra day, 24 hours, everybody else on the planet would freeze and so you would have the ability to do anything you wanted in those 24 hours or you could have one million dollars. One million dollars or one extra day for the rest of your life to do whatever you wanted. Which would you choose? Some of you are smiling like, show me the money. <laughs> A million bucks. But for me, in my life right now, there's a lot going on. We're getting used to life here as we've moved and transitioned. A lot going on in the life of Trinity. I would take the day. I would take the extra time. There's always so much to do. There's never enough time. And this week as I was studying this psalm, Psalm 90, I was thinking a lot about time. It seemed like God was orchestrating many teachable moments for me when it comes to time. There was extra traffic that I was sitting in. I got in the worst grocery line that I've ever got in in my life. And all these people are passing by. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, oh, and I'm looking around. But finally, I got into another line. And then I spent 45 minutes, actually an hour at the bank, just trying to accomplish one very simple task. So God was bringing, I think, all these moments into my life to teach me to prepare me to read this psalm and to teach this psalm because we're never more aware of time than when we're forced to wait. And in those moments when we're forced to wait, we realize what our view of time is, that, you know what? Time and the universe should revolve around me and my priorities and my schedule. Don't all these people on the 55 know that I have very important things to do? Doesn't everybody at Trader Joe's, they should just clear out, give me the line that I want to get in because I have a very important life. There's a lot of things I have to do. I don't have enough time to accomplish all that I need to do. So Psalm 90 was written to tell us that if our view of time centers on us, if our view of time revolves around us, then we'll always be frustrated. We'll never learn wisdom. A wise view of time. So it shows us as we begin to think about our time, we need to think, firstly, of God's time. Look at verses 1 and 2. These are two of the most important verses in all the Bible that describe God's relationship to time. Verse 1 says, God is a permanent dwelling place for every generation that has ever lived. The word there in the Hebrew is this word for an animal's den, where an animal goes and to hide and to seek shelter. So God, across all generations, is the only permanent home. The only safe refuge. And it says in verse 2 that before the earth was formed from everlasting to everlasting that you are God. Before the creation of the universe from one horizon of time to the other horizon of time. The psalmist says, Moses says, you are God. And that struck me. Why did he say you are God? Not you were God and you will be God. And I wonder if Moses was thinking back to when God had appeared to him in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 3, and called him and said, Moses, I want to show you my name. I want to reveal to you my name, and I want you to tell the people of Israel. And he said, my name is I Am. That I am the God who 
always was, who always will be. The best way to describe me is the great I am. And God is present in all eternity. Revelation 1.8 says, God speaking here, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The psalm says, 1,000 years to God is like yesterday. So when you start really thinking about this, and the deeper you go and start asking questions and probing, how could this be? What is this like for God? It starts to boggle the mind, and theologians actually debate and struggle. What is God's relationship to time? Is he in time? Is he outside of time? What does that even mean? Is it like being in a huge newsroom where you have all these TV monitors, and God has all the TV monitors playing all around him from all of history all at once? We think about that, and we go like, that is... Chaos. How could that even be? What is that like? All kinds of questions emerge here. You think back before the foundation of the world, what was God doing? I remember as I, as I was a little kid, sometimes at night that question would come to mind, like, before God created everything, what was he doing? It started to hurt my brain. Yeah, and I was, I was a weird kid like that for sure. But what can we say? We can say that God is not bound by time. God is Lord over time in a way that we can barely fathom. God has a perspective outside of time and is not bound by the succession of events as we experience time. So Psalm 90, though, isn't a doctrinal essay. It's not trying to answer all of our questions about what does it mean that God is outside of time. It's a prayer to become wise about our time more than a philosophical or theological definition of God's relationship to time, we need to have and we need to begin with a reverent recognition that God is above time, of the God who is Lord over time. Most daily prayer traditions include a prayer every day, as an every day, as a daily reminder of how God is an eternal God. And the prayer is this, glory be to the Father and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be forever. Amen. That this was, that this is, and this will always be the center of the universe. And that's the place to begin when we talk about time. God is eternal. As the psalm continues, it moves into talk about our lives and our relationship To time, and it sets up this contrast between the eternity of God and our lives, which are brief and broken. Verses 3 through 11 that we read says, No one lives forever, we all know that. No one can avoid being wounded and weighed down by the many toils and the troubles that we experience in this life. It's not something that we like to think about our own mortality, the fact that we don't have forever in this earth. We do all we can to avoid this topic. I think in our culture, in my reading this week, I came across an article that was saying, in the medieval times, the scholars would put for themselves a reminder of their own mortality on their desk, and they would put there a human skull. Now I'm moving, like we said, into a new office, so I will welcome all office warming gifts, but I would ask that you please refrain from giving me a human skull. That would be too intense and freak me out too much. But it's a very vivid picture, a very vivid reminder right there as they're studying that I'm not going to live forever. 
And Psalm 90 uses two very vivid pictures for us to make this point hit home. To force us to think about something that we don't want to think about. And the first picture is dust. Verse 3. God, it says, he says to humanity, you return man to dust. Another way to translate the second part of this verse is God says, return, O children of Adam. Remember who wrote this psalm? Moses. I think he has in the back of his mind Genesis, which he also wrote, the book of Genesis. He's referring back to that in verse 7 of chapter 2 in Genesis. It says, The Lord God formed the man of the dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And later in chapter 3, verse 19, after sin had entered into the world, after humanity had stepped away from God, God said to them, You will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The point of this picture is that life is a gift from God. That life in, in many ways is a fragile gift from God. We, without God's animating power in our lives, without His sustaining strength, we are just dust. And God is the author of life. He has authority over our lives and over our time in this world. Then the psalm goes on to say, our lives are like grass. In verse 5. Grass is used throughout the Bible to describe the fleeting nature of life, the nature of our lives in this world. Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. Isaiah 47, the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. Now there's a big difference in grass depending on where you live. And how do you think about grass? Where I grew up in the state of Florida, grass is very different than here in Southern California. If you just leave grass alone in Florida, pretty soon it will grow. It will overtake you and your entire house if you don't cut it back. Now here in Southern California, it's a little bit different. The reality is grass should probably not grow here. It does not belong with us in Southern California. If you leave grass alone here in your backyard or front yard, after a day or two, it's going to just shrivel up and become brown. In the ancient Near East, in Israel, the climate, the weather, was much like it is here in Southern California. So when they thought of grass, they thought of Southern California grass. One day, there it is sprouting. It rained. Yay, look, we have grass. The next day, it's dead. And it's gone. It was a very vivid picture for them. So Moses says... These are the pictures of our lives, dust and grass. And we all have dust and grass moments. Moments when we feel the brevity of our lives. The fragility of our lives. And I've been feeling these moments quite a bit lately. Luke is my youngest son. He's five years old. He keeps saying, you're 40! You're 40! He keeps yelling it out. I'm like, no, I'm not. I've got three more months in my 30s. So stop. <laughs> it happens in different ways for all of us. But for me, when, when, I did, when I turned 39 last December, something clicked in my head. I said, okay, I'm 39 now. Okay, in 10 more years, I'll be 49. In 10 more years, I'll be 59. I have a 10-year-old. I have an 11-year-old. At the time, we had lived 10 years in San Diego. And I said, wow, 10 more years then what is it going to be like? And all of a sudden, I start thinking, I'm not going to live forever. And it hit me in a really powerful and a strong way like it's never hit me before. 
We all have dust grass moments. These can be very hard times. These can be very fragile times in our lives. We experience major transitions. We can get into a midlife funk or crisis. We attend a funeral. We feel our age. We lose someone we love. We feel the brevity of life. Psalm 90 says, we are meant to bring this to God. These are hard moments, but these are moments when we can develop true wisdom. When through opening up our heart in prayer, we process these things, these dust and grass moments. Verses 7 through 11 goes on to describe not just the brevity and brokenness of life in a descriptive sort of way. The psalmist then starts to tell us and to explain why is it like this? Why is it dust? Why are we dust and grass? Why would it even be that way? Again, here in the background is Genesis 3, and it says here the answer is that both death and the difficulty of life are a result of God's anger and wrath over our sin. And he says it twice in ways that we can't miss it in verse 7, and then if you look again in verse 11, he bookends that whole section with this reality. Now, if we don't like to think about our mortality, if we don't like to think about the brevity of life, and the brokenness of life, then the topic of God's anger and wrath is something we like to think about even less. As Christians, we struggle with it. If you're here and you're just exploring and investigating Christianity, this is probably one of your biggest questions. Can God be angry? Can he be wrathful? I don't like that about Christianity. But Moses is saying that the brevity and brokenness of life is a result of living in this fallen and this cursed world. That death is an intruder to God's original design. That this is not the way it's supposed to be. And when it comes to God's anger and wrath, let's define that. What is, Mo- what is Moses talking about? What is wrath? Wrath is God's holy passion to rid us and the world of everything that keeps us from Him and His purposes. Wrath is God's holy passion to rid us and the world of everything that keeps us from Him and His purposes. The opposite of wrath is not love or niceness. That would be indifference. A God who is indifferent about evil, injustice, and suffering, and death that has infected the human race, He would say, I don't care if you ruin yourself and destroy yourself and others. A love without anger and wrath over the ruin of the beloved would not truly be love. It's not easy to process that, but it's a part of the Bible's explanation of why. Why is it like this? Why are we dust and grass? And everyone, no matter your faith or no matter your skepticism or where you're coming from, from your faith perspective, everyone still has to make sense of and has a response to this universal human experience, the tension of longing for the immortal, but at the same time, dealing with the reality of the brevity and the brokenness of life. This week on on Tuesday, as I was thinking about this, I came across this article in the New York Times, an opinion piece. It was written by a philosophy professor at Villanova University, and the piece was called, Why We Never Die. Verse 11 in the psalm says, who considers this? If you look down at that, who, who considers this? The point is, who wants to think about this? Who wants to think about our own death? Well, this philosophy professor says, here are my thoughts. And I thought it was a very interesting article, and I want to read some of that to you. So Professor Rockhill says, as a child, I was terrified of death. 
It was often in the twilight hours between the moment of lying down and the imperceptible instant of slipping off to sleep that the terror would arise. The thought of vanishing completely from the world, of being engulfed in ineradicable darkness would seize upon me and crush with it the very existence of the world. And looking back from this eminent afterlife on my earlier terrors and how they have been slowly buried over time, he says, I see now that they were overly fixated on my own biological death. Since I recognized eternal transcendence as nothing more than a comforting illusion, the only thing left was my finite life in the here and now, which was destined to disappear forever in an instantaneous blackout. Very striking. The psalmist says, who wants to consider this? Who wants to read an article that describes death like that? It is terrifying. It is a fearful thing. And I thought he was being very honest here. He goes on to say, here's why he says, I believe we never die. He says, our, mo- our molecules live on in the cosmos. And so we never die, as well as the wake of memory and the impact that we have on others. So he says, in light of the terror the frightening prospect of death. There is a sense, he says, we live on. But the psalm says that that's giving up too easily. That it's settling. The tension between our morality and eternity is meant to lead us to an even deeper struggle, but to a more satisfying answer. If you look at the psalm, verses 1 through 12, they're very gloomy. Verses 3 through 12 are very gloomy, kind of depressing, very dark. We're grass, we're dust. It brings us down. It makes us downcast. But verse 13 through 17 completely change in their mood, in their tone. They're about compassion, about God's satisfying love, about gladness and God's favor, about our work being established. So how did it switch? Why did it switch and how did it turn? How do we get from gloomy to gladness? Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann commented on this psalm. He says, this is not a prayer of resignation. This psalm is a prayer of resistance. Verse 13, the psalmist says, Turn, O Lord, how long? Instead of you saying to us in verse 3, You return, O man, to dust, the psalmist says, No, you return to us, O Lord. How long is it going to be like this? How long is it going to be not the way it's supposed to be? This is not the way that you intended it. He says, turn to us with your redemptive and your covenant love. Bring your healing compassion into our lives. Make us joyful and glad, and put your grace and your splendor upon our lives. The question is, how can God answer this prayer? What if God's wrath and God's anger weren't turned towards us? But what if they were turned towards removing the source, the reason, the cause of death and sin and evil and suffering in this world? What if there was a way that his holy passion was focused on removing our sin but rescuing us? This is what Moses is praying. And this is what the gospel says to us that God did in his son. Jesus faced the ineradicable darkness, the terror of God's holy passion against sin in our place. Our iniquities as the psalm says, our secret sins he took upon himself so that death would not be our end, but our entrance into eternal life. And so the psalm, in its 
passionate prayer of resistance leads us to the more satisfying answer that the brevity, that the brokenness of life is meant to lead us to the dying and the rising Savior, Jesus. When we grab a hold of this, the psalm says this can change everything about our daily lives. This can change how we view time and how we use our time and live our lives in the here and now. If you look at verse 17, the translated word there says, let your favor be upon us. The word there could also be translated loveliness or splendor or beauty. That there is a way living in this tension that our lives continue to be brief. We still suffer with brokenness. That our lives can carry with them and can reflect the beauty of God in all that we do. This comes, the psalm says, when we learn to, in verse 13, develop a heart of wisdom. Develop a practical understanding, verse 12, of what it looks like to live with the reality of our mortality and eternity in tension. So I'm going to close by just offering three questions for us to get to a heart of wisdom, to make this practical, to bring this home into our lives. First question, am I numbering my days? Most of us live so hurried, such a quick pace. We never slow down long enough for God to teach us to number our days. And when we have those dust and grass moments, those moments when we start to feel deep in our soul that I'm not going to live forever, that life is not going to go on forever. We tend to avoid those things. We tend to move on and we tend to get more busy. Psalm 90 is saying these moments are when we're most prepared to pray Psalm 90, Lord, give me a heart of wisdom. As a, a goodbye present from the church we came from in San Diego, Redeemer, we were given Disneyland passes for the year. So we have to look at all the blackout dates and everything, and we've been strategizing, when are we going to start it, so that when we end it, we'll still have some time after school and all that. So we've been looking at the calendar, we've been having family meetings about this, and we finally have our date on the calendar. We are numbering our days to make sure we get the most of them at Disneyland. <laughs> and this is the way that we should approach, Psalm 90 says, the gift of our lives. Our days, our unique resources, gifts, and talents given to us. How can I be a wise steward? How can I strategize with the time given to me to use my life for the things that matter, to invest my life in the people that God has put into my path? That's question one. Am I numbering my days? Question two. What am I looking to for satisfaction and joy? Those dust and grass moments that we have in our life, they often come when we experience a disappointment or a letdown. Something that we were looking to to provide us with joy. Something that we were looking to to provide significance and meaning in our life. It's come to an end. It's faded or we've lost it. These times, we could get stuck in verses 3 through 11. We can be hardened, we can be cynical and say, what's the point? But instead of becoming jaded and hardened in these times, these are the most opportune moments for us to pray, verses 14 and 15. To say, satisfy us in the morning, Lord, with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen 
evil. Wisdom knows that brokenness and beauty, joy and affliction are not mutually exclusive. But often only when we learn to release our false joys and learn what true gladness is through affliction, through the wrestling with our brokenness, can we gain a true heart of wisdom. So as the psalmist says, we begin each day, satisfy us in the morning with a reorientation of our delight, of where we're looking for meaning and satisfaction. The last question, question three, whose work is first in my life? If you look at the very end of Psalm 90, verse 17, it, be, it ends with this passionate but repeated prayer, establish the work of our hands, establish the work of our hands. Give some meaning, give some permanence to what I'm doing in this life. But before he ends with that prayer in verse 16, he prays first, God, let your work be revealed to us. Let your work be shown to us first. Before I work, before we work, let me look at your work. And the order is crucial. Because one of the worst feelings that we can have in this life is that we're just working and nothing's happening. We're just about the daily grind. And what's the point of everything that we're doing? What these last verses are saying to us is that what we do in this life can be full of significance, can be full of meaning when we remember whose work is first. It applies to all of our work, our work, the work of marriage, the work of relationships, our work in the marketplace, our work in ministry in the church, all that we do. If we live like our work is first, that what we do, how well we do it, how much we do. If we live like that is the first thing in our lives, then we will be burdened. Then we will always feel like we're never doing enough. Wisdom is learning then the work of Jesus for us must always proceed, must always empower and motivate all our work and all that we do. The gospel gives us the bigger story of which our work is a part of. You may have heard this illustration before, but the story is told of a grand cathedral construction project. And you pass by one of the workers, and he's just slopping the brick mortars together, putting brick upon brick, and you ask him, what are you doing? I'm just slopping bricks. Go to the next person, doing the same job, slopping brick after brick. What are you doing? I'm building a wall. Kind of pointless. Just building a wall. You go to the third person who's doing it with delight. And you ask him, well, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a cathedral. That's the difference, Psalm 90 says, that the gospel makes in our lives on a daily basis. That our lives, because of the resurrection of Jesus, our lives are a part of something greater that God is building. His work is first. He's the architect and the builder. And he gives us a place to work with him. I'll close with this quote from N.T. Wright. He says, The work that we do in the present, then, gains its full significance from the eventual design in which it's meant to belong. Applied to the mission of the church, this means that we must work in the present for the advanced signs of the eventual state of affairs when God is all in all when his kingdom has come and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. You are our dwelling place. From the beginning to the end of time, you are God. And I pray for us as we wrestle with this, as we reflect on what you are speaking to each one of us by your Spirit through your Word. I pray where there is the burden of brokenness. I pray where there is the confusion or the wrestling or the struggle with our limited time on this earth. As we are wrestling with those things, I pray that you would speak hope into our hearts. That you would deliver us from being jaded or hardened and you would give brand new significance and beauty to the things that you have called us to do. And set us free from thinking it depends on us. Ground our lives in your work first for us so that we might live with grace and with passion into the things that you've called us to do. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.